So turn with me to James chapter 1, the book of James in chapter 1. Today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. It's the day that Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem. He goes into Jerusalem and all the people are celebrating in a way that was so much larger than even a recent celebration at the AA Center for Dirk Nowitzki. <laughs> and you saw all that and all the emotion and everything. Imagine something even greater, the promises of the prophets coming to fruition that Messiah is here and, and excited about the, 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 what the Lord is doing and they're celebrating. And only five days later, they're crucifying the very one that rode in the donkey. And you think, wow. He was crucified for your sins and for mine. He died, was buried, spent three days in the tomb, rose again from the grave, and for 40 days appeared to the disciples, proving that he was who he said he was, that the prophets had, had all that the prophets had proclaimed, he was fulfilling, and, and that he was right there with them. He had risen from the grave, and yet here he is. And then for 40 days he does that, and then he ascends into heaven from the Mount of Olives. They go back into Jerusalem, as we saw when we looked at Acts 1-8, and they go back into Jerusalem, and they waited for the time that God had for them, for the Spirit to come on them. They waited 10 days till Pentecost, which means 50. And they, they waited those 10 days. The Spirit came upon them. And the message of the gospel went throughout the world, throughout the earth, including Mansfield, Texas. To each and every one of us having the opportunity to hear the message about Christ, the message that Jesus saves those who believe in him. And you think, wow, what an incredible, simple message that God has done. And he provided that. And you think, so what was the purpose of all of that? Was it only eternal life that he died for? Did he only die to change my eternity? Because if he did, why doesn't he just take us like that? Once we receive Christ, poof, we're gone. Why not? Because he has more than that in store for us. He wants to renew us. He wants to restore us. And in fact, in Colossians 1.10, Paul puts it this way. He says, I put on the new self, which is being renewed. Being renewed, being made new in knowledge, in the image of its creator. Jesus died not only to change my eternity, but to change my now. To change my life now. To make me more and more like Jesus Christ. To make you and you more and more like Jesus Christ. And so you think, here's the question. Is that happening? Or how is that happening? I mean, that's a very convicting question to ask right after that, right? And you think, okay, buckles, you're meddling now. <laughs> because what is this idea of if, if that's what Christ came for to change my life, and if it's happening or not happening, or how much is it happening, we've got to ask those kinds of questions, the tough questions. In Romans chapter 12, he says, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So it needs to change. Our mind, our thinking needs to change. So when I read God's word, 
It should change my thinking. It should change my thinking to conform to his word and not to the world around me. And the interesting thing is, as believers, can we say that we're not being influenced by the world or that we are? I think that there's, there, there is happening. And so Jesus came to change my eternity and to transform my life. It means that I should live differently. And in fact, in Ephesians 4.11, it says, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for what? Works of service. Not, he doesn't say to prepare God's people to be more intellectual about their faith, more informed about their faith, to teach God's people or to equip God's people to, to, to be uh, 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 somebody who can, can uh, recognize false theology, he says, what? To do our four works of service. He wants to change what we do. He wants to change how we live. And that's the purpose of God's word is to change us, to make us different. And in fact, in Colossians 2.10, he says, for we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's why he created us, to do good works. He created us, which it says, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Emphasis on the word do. He wants us to do our faith. He wants our lives to be lives that do not lives that don't, not lives that just are better thinkers about theology. He wants us to be those who are transformed, a body of doers. And so as we begin, and that leads us to this passage this morning, because you know, remember the three parts of, of a Bible study, there's observation, interpretation, and then application. Application is where we're moving toward. Observation, we ask the question, what does it say? With uh, interpretation, we ask and answer the question, so what does it mean? And if we don't understand what it means, we go back, what does it say? And that helps us to understand what it means. The third question, and I know it says, how does it work? I'm going to change that one this morning. I'm changing it to, so what? Who cares? Who cares that you know this bit of information about the Bible? Who cares that you know this bit of information about God? Because if it doesn't make any difference on Monday morning, who cares? It doesn't change you. It just, you just remain the same. God doesn't want us to just remain the same. He loves us too much for us to stay the same. He wants us to change. He wants us to become different people. And so we've got we've to take that as part of the process. And so when we ask these questions and we work through this process, God wants us to be different. And so during this phase of observation, we ask the six questions of observation. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. And so we look through the passage asking those questions, trying to answer as many of those as we can. And then we take the seven principles of interpretation. We seek the intention of the original author, which is God himself. What did he mean when he wrote it? 
Because there's only one meaning to any passage of Scripture. I've heard people say, oh, Bible, there's, there's multiple meanings. No, there's only one meaning, what he intended, not what we all think and, and mistake and think are all the different meanings. Now, there are different applications. One interpretation, many applications uh, in my own life. I can look at a passage when I'm 20 and look at the same passage when I'm 30 and I see things that I didn't see before. I understand some things that I could apply it to that I didn't understand before. And so all of a sudden I've got new applications, but the meaning is still the same because it's what God meant, not what I make it to mean. Then you look at the original context to help you understand meaning. You seek the plain sense of a passage. You don't try to make it mean something it doesn't mean. You understand an unclear passage in light of a clearer one because scripture interprets scripture. Then you look for the timeless principle, and we have that little chart that uh, has the then and now. This is how it was. Here's the original timeless principle, and then here's how it applies. Uh, and you remember the arrow going across to the now part of it. Uh, and then we distinguish between Israel and the church because there are some things that are intended for Israel, uh, and we begin to kind of claim these promises, and it was never intended for us. And then the type of literature impacts the meaning. So now we look at application. It's like putting all the ingredients together in order to, to come out with what God has designed. It's like making a cake. You can put all the ingredients together, but at some point you've got to put it in the oven and cook it, right? Because otherwise you just got this bowl of smush. Now, I kind of liked eating out of that bowl of mush, but that's a whole other issue in itself. And doesn't fit with my illustration, but... Uh, the ingredients are put in there for the purpose of making this cake. Uh, we, and you've heard me use this illustration b before, but uh, I got a little variation on it. Uh, you can imagine us as believers in the huddle. And God calls the play, right? And what happens when the play is called is we start analyzing the play. Oh, wow, that's a great play. Oh, I love that play. In fact, that's the perfect time to call this play. In fact, God... 423 times in second down in this situation called this exact same play and, and the other times he called this other play and, 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 and compared to the other coaches uh, they, they called different plays at this time and, and we just analyzed the play to death and the crowd's screaming run the play and you think well I don't know the play well enough yet I, I need to understand it a little bit better and, I, and so we, we feel like that somehow we just keep waiting and keep waiting and then we get older and older and then we never really apply the scriptures to our life because we always think we're going to know just a little bit more and we, we got to know this little bit more and we're not quite worthy and we feel all those things it's like run the play when I first came to Christ I, I had people around me that wanted me to grow in Christ and I got discipled right away. Not everybody has that experience. I had that experience. I came to Christ one week. The next week I was out sharing my faith. I mean, actually the other guy was sharing his faith and I was along for the ride and I was kind of watching and, and at one point he let me share my testimony and then he you know, uh, sh showed me how to share my faith and then he said, uh, you need to get a Bible study going. I'm like, I, I don't know anything. I don't even know where the books of the Bible are. And he said, that's all right. Just know, stay one step ahead of the next guy and you'll be fine. And so I said, okay. And so I started a Bible study and, then, and, and, and I, I got some guys, some of these guys that we were shared with Christ with, some of them came to Christ. And so we, I started a Bible study with these new believers. And, and, I, and I just kept taking the steps. And, and I just thought that was part of the Christian life. I thought that's just what you did as a believer. I didn't know that you could sit around and have a virtual Christianity. 
You know, and, and that's what a lot of people experience. In fact, it's easy to fall into that. It's easy for me to fall into that. Even though I know better, it's easy to fall into that. A virtual Christianity where you're kind of, I mean, our world has kind of moved to a virtual world. We, we don't have to go and live on an island and, you know, uh, eat gross stuff and, and do without food. Uh, we can just watch other people do it on the big screen, right? And our TVs at home. We can watch all these people and Survivor and, and going through these different things. And, and, and we, can, we can live a whole and make a whole virtual world on gaming. And we can find ourselves living this world and, 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 and working and, and doing all these things and, and winning all these points. And I remember one time my son was, was playing a particular game. And I, I said, uh, so now, uh, which character is the one that's your? He said, that's me right there. And I'm thinking, no, that's not you on that screen. That's you sitting in the chair. But we so identify with the one on the screen, we say, that's me. And they think, no, that's just a character on a screen. That's a virtual. And, and we identify with that. And, and it's like we live in this virtual world and we experience it by watching. And God never designed us to live the Christian life by watching, and yet we're, we do that too. We do that very well. We'll read books on missionaries. We'll listen to great speakers, and, and we'll hear about their harrowing incidents, and we'll pray for them. And yet we, we don't get involved ourselves because it's safer to just kind of sit back, and we don't feel worthy, and, and, and we're not worthy. He makes us worthy. I'm not worthy in and of myself. I'm not even worthy to be up here in front of you. It's, it's because God creates in us this this. These, these desires and he, he creates in us the opportunity to, to, to share our faith and to, to get involved in people's lives. And he wants to change us. He wants to transform us. And, and he does that by us doing, not by just us watching. And in fact, in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, he talks about what happens when we as a body do the works that he's prepared for us to walk in. In uh, chapter 4 and verse 11, it says, uh, to prepare, or 12, to prepare God's people for works of service. Why? So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity of the faith and then the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's what happens in our lives when we get involved. That doesn't happen when I don't get involved. I don't grow in the unity of faith. I don't grow in maturity. It's when I get involved that I begin to have to learn some things and apply some things and, and trust God for some things. And when we take those steps, we find that it's a very different life. I remember uh, I love John Christ. Uh, I love his humor. And he has this one called virtual church. And in virtual church, he's, he wakes up in the morning. He, sticks, he says, well, I don't have to go on Sunday morning. He just sticks this thing on his face, right? virtual reality stuff and and so then he's uh, it, it has you know select uh, your denomination so he selects the denomination that's an easier word for you to say uh, anyway he selects his church and uh, he he then selects the kind of music that he wants you know Hillsong or whatever or, you know uh, Tomlin and, and so he picks the church then he picks the the clothes that he's going to wear a suit or just casual or Amish and so uh, he picks the clothing and then he goes through and he and he, and he you know, he picks skinny jeans for his worship leader. And I mean, just all these different things, you know. And it's like he goes through and I just think, man, how much. And then, and it, then it reminds you when the game is on. And so he pulls off that six on his ball cap and then he's ready for the game, right? And so it's like we, wanna, we want to we become a, a bunch of consumers instead of those who are participants in, a, in, a, in, a, in something that God has designed for us.
He never designed us to be the audience. He always designed for us to be the performers to those who get involved and do. And that's what our passage is this morning in James. He talks about doing. He talks about, uh, in verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive ourselves. Do what it says. So this morning's message, if you miss the point, do what it says. Underline, highlight, whatever. Do what it says. Do the word. You see, the book of James is a book about faith. I always looked at the book of James as maybe a New Testament Proverbs, that it had wisdom literature. But when I began to look at it, especially this week, I began to see it as a, as a book about faith. And in fact, if you look at a chart of the book, you see that when he starts out in the book, in chapter 1, he's talking about trials that happen in our lives. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. And if you want to get your phone out and take pictures of any of the slides, uh, feel free to do so. And so he's talking about these trials that we face, that we face trials in our lives and we face them by faith. And so it's trials in faith. And then in our passage, starting even at verse 19, he begins to talk about faith and works. How do they work together that we do works of faith as part of our faith? And then in chapter 3, he talks about the tongue, and he says, uh, we all stumble in any ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. And so he's talking about faith and what we talk about, what we, how we um, speak. And then he talks about faith and how we walk in the Christian life, how we live the Christian life, uh, submitting ourselves to God in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, he comes back to this idea of suffering and waiting on the Lord and waiting in prayer. And so prayer and faith and how those work together. And so you see that this is a book about faith, about living by faith in every area and every aspect of our lives. And in this part of the passage, he talks about doing, about living, about working uh, in, in our faith, working out uh, the salvation that he so freely has given to us. But I want to back up one verse. The context is really important here. And I I think that many times, in fact, when I memorized this uh, book, I was looking at verse 22, and I, and I thought about that, th that as a separate section, do not merely listen to the word, and that he's moving on. But I realized that phrase right before, the context, is so crucial, where he says, humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. And I was thinking about what does this mean to humbly accept the word? Humbly accept the word. Well, the opposite of that would be pridefully accepting the word, right? Or not accepting the word. What does it mean to be humble? And the word humble means the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's importance. So I'm not overly impressed with who I am when I approach the word. So when I approach the word, is it all about me? Have I, am I not humble if I'm thinking it's all about me and I'm, I'm just thinking about my own application? And I'm not thinking, how does my application fit my relationship with you? How does my own application fit my relationship with God? How does it impact my neighbor, the person at school that I go to school with, the, the people that I work with? I also thought, how does it fit whenever I'm looking and I have a command of the word. I understand a passage. And I feel like that 
I'm over the word and that it's me making decisions about passages. And if I don't like a passage, I kind of rework it and re-understand it so that it fits me and fits what I believe or want to believe. And so then I find that I'm not humbly accepting. There are times when I look at the word and, and it makes me mad. It, it points out something in my life and I don't like it. And I find myself frustrated with it. And, I, and I'm thinking, God, I can't, how dare you say that to me? And then I repent later on because I realize he's right. He's speaking truth into my life because he loves me so much. And so I humbly accept. And that word accept is to welcome it into my life, to receive it into my life. And not to, be, not to read a passage going, I'm not doing that. There's no way that I'm, 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 I'm going to do this. And find ourselves sitting in judgment on the word. And a, another phrase that jumped out at me in this is humbly accepting the word planted in you. When, when did that happen? When did it get planted? And it drew me to the parable of the sower. That God is constantly sowing his word in various ways. When I was a student at University of Texas on the tower, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Right there. And everybody can read it. God's truth. God using his word. Implanting it on my heart. A guy who didn't even know the scriptures before I went to the University of Texas. Well, in the parable of the sower, he says, listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. So important for why we want to understand God's word. Why we want to ask the question, what does it say and then what does it mean? says the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The one who received the seed that fell in the rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since it has no root, it lasts only a short time or he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life and deceitfulnesses of, deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who received the seed, notice received, accepted, humbly embraced the word and understands it, he produces, um, that fell, or one who received the word that fell on the good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what is sown. And so there's this blessing that comes by the person who receives the word. And you see that in verse 25. It says, but the perfect, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, it sets you free. And continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it. He will be blessed in what he does. You want God's blessing on your life? Here's a promise, a promise you can claim that God wants to bless your life and he wants you just to simply apply his word. Simply do it. Don't just know it. Run the play. Run the play. Don't just analyze the play. Run the play that he has called for you no matter how fearful you may be. And then he has this last phrase, which can save you up in verse 21. Humbly accept the word, plant it in you, which can save you? And the question is, in what sense does it save us? 
You see, the word save can be used in a lot of different senses, and it is in Scripture. In Philippians, Paul uses the word save to say, I'm, I want to be saved from prison. I want to be released from prison is his idea. And so there's that idea of that uh, in that sense. There's the sense in which it's used of justification, that moment when we initially come to know Jesus Christ and we're declared not guilty. That's the initial point of our salvation. But then there's this sanctification process. And are we saved from the power of sin in our lives now? And then glorification, when we're saved uh, from the presence of sin, when we will be with Jesus one day. And so you ask the question here, probably not talking about glorification here. He may be talking about our salvation because he just talked about it in verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of his truth. And so we see that justification idea there. In the very immediate context, therefore get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. So I think he's referring especially to saved from the power of sin now. That we begin to live out the Christian life. That that's what he desires for us. And that we do so as we, in verse 25, look intently into the perfect law. That's not a casual glance, that's a, that's a look. That gives freedom, and so we humbly accept, if I can draw from verse 21, we look intently, we humbly accept the word, it gives us freedom, we continue to do this, not forgetting, so we put it as a reminder on our phones, on our, on, on our computers, on our calendars, to remind us, here's what I'm growing in, here's what God's doing in my life right now. You'll, you'll accomplish 85% of the things that you write down. Write it down. Every time you open God's word, every time you hear a message spoken, take and write down one point, one thing that God has pressed on your heart and say, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to just be a hearer only. I'm going to do it because I want God's blessing in my life. And so you begin to do that one thing. And you put a reminder that it'll come up and pop up every single day. So you can go, oh, wow, I forgot. I'm glad I had it as a pop-up. And you will begin to grow in ways that you can never imagine. Not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed. You can claim the promise of God. And he gives us a, an image here, a picture here. He says, do what it says. And then verse 23, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like the man who looks at his own face in the mirror. I'm glad he said face and not stomach. Because <laughs> I've looked at myself in the mirror a lot and I've walked away and forgotten what I looked like and didn't, done nothing, made no change about losing weight. This year I decided I'm making some changes. And for two months I, I went on a sugar fast and, and lost 17 and then I went to Ecuador. <laughs> but I still got most of it off and so I, I want to I keep going. I want to keep losing because I don't want to take myself out to a heart attack or stroke because I didn't do something about it. I didn't change and I want to be blessed in physically because I do what God has led me to do. He says, after he looks at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently at the perfect law. And so there's that issue of looking in a mirror and seeing ourselves and seeing who we are. And that God begins to change us and he makes us different. And that I'm not just like the dog who looks in the mirror and starts barking at this other dog in the mirror. You know, angrily. But I change what I do. 
So there's four steps toward application that I'm going to give you as application to this message about application. The first step is look for the timeless principle. As you read God's word, look for the timeless principle and figure out what is it that I can do as a result of what God is teaching me. So the timeless principle is a place to start. And then take that timeless principle and look for the relationships around you, your relationship with God. How does this timeless uh, principle apply to me and my relationship with God? How does it apply to me in my own life? How does it apply to my family, the people living around me? What can I change in the home? How can I treat people differently around me? How can I deal with other Christians or non-Christians? What about work or school, church, community? How does that change me? And in fact, that's what you see as he begins to talk about this, is changes in those around you in verse 26. He says, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, what is that? That's your relationship with everybody. A tight rein on your tongue. He deceives himself and his religion is worthless. And so whenever I'm not keeping a tight rein on my tongue, whenever I'm allowing myself to complain and gripe and criticize those around me, then I'm... I'm I'm missing out because I'm not doing, I'm not applying the word of God to my very tongue. And we do that so often where we complain and gripe and criticize those around us instead of building relationship. And especially with those we disagree with, we find ourselves at war with them. I heard a great statement last night in our small group and, and he was talking about the, the guy that we were watching on Right Now Media was talking about this idea that we have shifted from, from this idea that we want to restore or rebuild relationship, relational, to warring with people around us. And you see it all around us. You see it politically. You see it uh, in, on social media where people are just in each other's face about something. And I think, is that what Christ wants me to do, to be in people's face and to be angry and hateful and mean in my speech? Or does he want me to be loving and kind and respectful of those who are around me, even those who I disagree with, and that uh, there's no way that I'm going to win somebody to Christ whenever they've got their defenses up and I've just attacked them and they're attacking me back. But when they attack me and I love them back, they don't know what to do with that. And I love them in spite of how they treat me. It changes me, and I, I keep a tight rein on my tongue. I keep a tight rein on my fingers as I'm typing something out, or my thumbs as I'm putting something, inputting something on social media. And I think, how can I respond in grace? How can I respond in love? And not just anger for anger. It says, religion that our God the Father accepts is pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And so it changes that relationship with those people around me that don't have and can't pay me back whenever I reach out and love on them. And that's what we're doing on Community Outreach Day. On that Sunday, we're going into the community and we're loving those who can't necessarily respond back to us in kind. And that's the way it should be. When we go to Ecuador, we do the same thing with the Quechua. There are people who, they have nothing. We brought $133 worth of groceries, and it was enough because food is cheap there to feed the whole village, and they were all excited about this food that we had brought. pastor was in tears, and the community leader comes out and thanks us for it, and you're kind of like, wow, it's just $133. Bucks. Spend more of that, about that much a week in, in the United States, and they're thankful for this food that we bring, and you just kind of go, wow. 
No way they could ever pay us back. No way people in this community could ever pay you back for some of the things that we've done and people we've ministered to. And I just think, thank God for that. And if they could pay me back, I'd say pay it forward. Don't pay us. Pay the, pay the next person. Keep it going. God's pleased with that. When you think about this application, there's, there's some questions you can ask yourself. I have a slide with a series of those on there. I would encourage you to get your phone and take every one of you take a picture of this slide because you're not going to remember all these things just by me reading them. But ask yourself and have this list with you right by when you're spending time in God's Word, in your daily times with the Lord. Ask yourself these questions. Is there a principle to apply, a timeless principle? Is there a command I need to obey? Is there a sin that I need to confess or forsake or repent of? A habit to start or to stop? Is there an attitude that I need to correct and I have a stinky attitude and it needs to change? A truth to believe. A promise to claim this passage right here. A promise to claim, I apply your word, I'm going to be blessed. Wow, let's do it. Let's get blessing from God. An example to follow is James an example for me in this. Is Paul an example? Is there somebody that I know in this world that's doing what this scripture talks about, what this timeless principle is, and can I follow them? Maybe get lunch with them or buy coffee for them and say, hey, I've noticed this in your life. How do you get that in your life? I don't have it in my life. Because when you can get it down to that point where you're seeing it in somebody else's life, you're beginning to understand what it is that God's word is speaking to you. An area to release to God, a specific action to take, a condition to meet, a person to forgive, a danger or error to avoid, a change to make in my character, conduct, or conversation. And the minute I read this list, you go, wow, this is overwhelming. That's why step number four, we need the Spirit of God to give us the strength to do it, the wisdom to do it, the power to do it. There's things that we're not going to want to do, and, and He can change our heart. He can change our attitudes and move us in the direction that he wants for us. Let's not be Christians who live a virtual reality Christianity, but who live out the life that God designed for us, that Christ died for us to be able to live until that day that he comes to get us again. We have an incredible Lord and Savior who loves us, and wants to transform us. He loves us too much to leave us like we are. And he wants us to be transformed to the image of his son. Father, we come to you this morning. And we're excited about what you've done. We're excited about that transformation that you desire to make in our lives. And Lord, I pray that we would follow you. I pray that we would be doers of the word. Who apply your word to our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would bring the blessing that you promise. It may be a future blessing, a future reward. It may be one that we don't see right away. But Father, we long for your blessing. We long for your statement, well done. We long for your voice in our hearts and in our minds to transform our thinking into your thinking. Lord, help us to listen well. Help us to listen intently. Help us to embrace humbly your word Help us to do it continually. And Father, help us to just live for you. Help us to be a church of doers for you who not only understand what the truth is, but actually live it in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.